You guys are going to have to help me. There is a cricket in here, and if you guys are like totally dead silent, I'm going to feel like we're in a tomb or something today. So, <laughs> get this down there. We'll go ahead and dismiss the children, ages four years old through fourth grade, for Children's Church. <laughs> I love that song, uh, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Um, it was, actually plays a role in early revival church history. There was an early revival meeting around the turn of last century, I guess it was, where the gospel was preached uh, the and people were getting right with the Lord. And they sang that song during the invitation. Here's the thing. The Sands of Time of, Are Sinking has 19 verses. So that's how long their invitation took, you know, because <laughs> people were taking it seriously, though, making things right with the Lord. And I bet you that time flew by singing those songs. And I've looked through other verses. There are some amazing verses in that song that are not in our hymn books. They're not in any hymn book that I have found. Maybe the one that I gave you, Luke, because I think they try to put every verse in there. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, there's, there's 19 verses to that song, and it's, it's such a great, great thought, you know. And was that, Pastor? <laughs> That is a book, yes, it is, pretty much. So they probably, it probably was like a really long poem, and then somebody took it and put it, put it to music. So. But uh, we're going to be opening our Bibles to Ephesians chapter number 4 today, continuing on with our One Another series. Although our text does not directly deal with the words one another, um, the thought I think is really important to our relationship with one another. And the words one another are used in this context in another passage, but I've already preached it. So I'm not going to go back and re-preach through that sermon. So, But Ephesians chapter number four, we're going to read verses one through 16 again. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the peace of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of God. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. 
but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for the message of your word and the challenges that, that you give us, Lord, this passage about unity and maturity in the faith. And Lord, I, I long to be a man who is, uh, who is mature before you and who glorifies you and, and edifies the body of Christ. And I just pray that you will uh, bless me as I preach your word and try to convey the message that you've laid on my heart from this text. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said in prayer, that kind of the topic that I'm going to be dealing with today is the, the idea of unity. As a church, we need to be united. You could title this, Be Ye Like-Minded, One With Another, but you'll find that phrase somewhere else in the Bible. But the idea here is that we have an obligation as a body of Christ to be like-minded. And one of the things that has impressed me about the whole transition process of becoming pastor here was the unity of this church. But one thing I'm convinced from this text is no matter how unified we are, there is still more unity that we need to pursue. That, that is a central thought that, that Paul is going to be driving home in this text here. But he starts off in, in verse number one. Sorry, before I get there. When we talk about unity, unity is, an, is, is a concept that I think a lot of us are more than fully aware of in our society when you think of politics, right? Would we say our nation is a unified nation today? No, we would not. We've seen more and more the effects of division in our country. There was a time, there's always been Republicans and Democrats in America, so there's always been a division. But back in the past, it seems like in spite of those divisions, there was still a sense in which uh, America's attacked in Pearl Harbor. And what do we do? We go to fight for our nation. We're unified behind a cause. Whether we're Democrats or Republicans, we were able to do that. And over the past few elections, we have seen more and more the nation polarized and pushed apart and this division. And I'm not going to argue whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, or, or otherwise, but we see the effects of disunity in our nation. And in the church, that can be the case as well, where we become so disunified by polar opposite ways of thinking, and we allow the church to get pulled apart. And that is not God's design for the church. He wants us to be unified. And at Paul, as he, as he develops this text in Ephesians chapter number four, that is an important aspect of what is on his heart. Verse number one, he starts off with just an introduction here. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And pastor preached through the book of Ephesians, and when he dealt with these texts, he talked about the walks, right? We have walking worthy of Christ, of walking worthy of our vocation or our calling. And the idea here is that there is a certain lifestyle that is appropriate. It is fitting. It matches the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And everything else that comes after that describes what is that worthy lifestyle. How do we live worthy of the calling, the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ? And here he says that we're to do it with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And I'm just hitting those because those aren't the emphasis of my message today. But verse number three gives the last one in that list, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is how we walk worthy of our salvation how we walk in a way that matches what Christ has done in our lives. It matches our profession uh, as, as believers. One thing that is true of, of salvation is that when we became believers, we were put into the body of Christ. And Galatians talks about how Jews and Gentiles, free and slave, they've all been united in one body. Of Christ. And so we are to walk in light of that truth. We are to live our lives in light of that truth. And so we are to strive for unity. That is walking worthy of our salvation. 
Now, is unity always a good thing? A lot of times we hear a lot of, a lot of talk about how we all need to be united. This is, this, is, this is good. We should strive for this, right? Churches want to be united even though they have polar opposite ways of thinking about how to do church and what to believe. Even how do you get saved? You know, and they want to be united. But unity in and of itself is not a positive. It is neutral. Think of this. You can be united in something that is wrong. Let's say we have a gang of kids, okay? A gang of kids, they all look at each other like brothers. There's solidarity. David, your gang of kids over there? Okay. So, <laughs> but they're all, they're all united, and David decides, we're going to go rob a bank tomorrow. And so all the kids get together. They're united in this cause to go rob the bank. Okay? Nobody is dissenting from it. Is that a good unity? No, it is not a good unity, right? And we see this in the Bible with uh, an example in Luke 23, verse 12, talking about Herod and Pilate. It says, in the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before, they were at enmity between themselves. They had a disagreement. They didn't like each other. But some event caused them to be united. Well, what was that event? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So was their unity a good thing or a bad thing? It was a bad thing. So unity can be a bad thing, but it also can be something that is good. Let's say uh, David and his gang get together and they decide we're going to go build a treehouse for an orphan kid, okay? Have you guys ever seen the feature family films, The Buttercream Gang? My wife was watching this last week before I left, so I came in after being at the office, and they were watching it. But this gang, okay, kind of a weird word to use, this gang was united in doing good things for people. They would go and they'd help an old lady cross the street, or um, some guy's shop got broken into and robbed, and they would go and help him reset everything up and, and get settled and all this stuff. And so their gang was doing good. So unity can be a good thing, and it can be a bad thing. But in the church, we ought to be striving for unity, and it ought to be a good thing because of why we are united. And that's going to that's gonna be our first point here. The basis for our unity is found in verses 3 through 6. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And that seems like a random, long list. It was probably some sort of a creed that Paul is reciting at this point. But there is a tie behind a lot of these things. Vince, commentary, he, he explains it this way. He joins them all together. He says, I exhort you to unity, for you stand related to the church, which is one body in Christ, to the one spirit who informs it, to the one hope which, is your, which your calling inspires, to the one Lord, Christ, in whom ye believe with one common faith, receiving one common sign of that faith, baptism. Above all, to the one God and Father. And then I kind of simplified it. The basis of our unity is this. It's our common relationship with the Lord, enabled by the same Holy Spirit, and founded on a shared faith, which is shown by our common worship which baptism would be a form of that worship. So we have, first of all, common relationship. We are all brothers and sisters within the same body of Christ. And so we should be able to be united. One thing I know as a military brat growing up, um, relationships sometimes are hard to form for me, okay? And some of you may be like that as well. I traveled, four, four years was usually the most I was in one location. So did I develop good, strong relationships with other kids? No, because I wasn't going to see them again, you know? But what relationship did I develop better? The one with my family, my, ki my, my brothers and sisters at least, you know? Why? They're the only friends I could depend on to be there, you know? My brothers and sisters were always going to be there for me. And because of that relationship, I could depend on them in, in to be that. Now, we have broken relationships in America. So maybe that illustration breaks apart for you. But ideally, in Christ, as brothers and sisters, we are to be there for each other, and we are to be united because of that relationship. We are part of one body, and, and then also we are, so we are, we are in a common relationship with the Lord. We are enabled by the same Holy Spirit. I do not have more of the Holy Spirit than you do. 
I do not have a different Holy Spirit than you do. We all have the same one. He is working in every single one of you. Elena, the Holy Spirit is working in you the same that he is working in Jeff and that he is working in Luke and that he is working in Pastor Carsey's. That's the same Holy Spirit. And we all have that inside of us to inform us and to empower us in our relationship and our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are one body, but we are also one spirit. It says, even as you are called in one hope of your calling here. Uh, verse number four, what is our hope of our calling? The resurrection from the dead, our future in heaven with Jesus Christ. We all have that to look forward to. We share this common hope between us. One Lord, one faith. One faith here is the, the basis of our relationship. We have, our, our relationship is founded on a shared faith. That's something I have in common with every person in this room is that I have a shared faith with you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know him as your savior. That is something we have in common. And it is the foundation on which our relationship ought to be built and is built. So we have that shared faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay, well, what is baptism? It's something we do as a symbol or a sign of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in Vincent's thing, he said it was the common sign of that faith, is baptism, okay? But it's part of our worship. We gather together and we worship alongside each other, and we, and we show our faith by our baptism. So in essence, we are all part of the same group, we all have the same Holy Spirit, we all have the sh same faith, and we all worship the same God, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And that should be the, the basis for our unity, the commonality that we share in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so as, as believers, our closest relationships ought to be with other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ that we share those things with. So that's verses 3 through 6. Verses 7 through 10, though, um, I had to ask myself, how does this fit into the context because Paul starts with unity, endeavoring to keep the unity. He talks about the one body and the, and the one spirit. And then later on in the text, talking about the, the work of the pastors and all that, to, uh, verse 13, till we all come in unity of the faith. And unity is constantly repeated throughout this text. But verse number seven, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And we'll stop with verse 11. I'm technically only supposed to go through verse 10. How does this fit? What is the threat to unity? What breaks apart unity? Differences, right? You think differently. You act differently. You believe differently. Those things are threats to unity. And so Paul is concerned that us having differences, different gifts of the Holy Spirit, will break down that unity. And so he's showing how that is not actually a threat. The fact that you may have one spiritual gift that I don't have, and I have a gift that you don't have, is not a threat to our unity. It is actually something that is intended to promote our unity. Now, this becomes practical when you think about somebody who has the gift of mercy, okay? A merciful person, when somebody has sinned in the church, how are they normally going to respond? They're going to come alongside that person, encourage them, help them get back up on their feet, and, and try to get them on the straight and narrow, right? Because they're merciful. But a person who's gift is maybe prophecy or judgment or discernment or something like that, how are they going to tend to react to that person? They're going to say, that was wrong. You need to get right, you know? And there's different approaches, right? And those differences could cause conflict if we're walking in the flesh between the merciful person and the person who sees everything black and white the way it should be, Right? And those personalities don't necessarily get along. But God has gifted us in different ways within the body of Christ. And those differences are intended to promote unity, not to destroy the unity. <clears throat> uh, 
Verse 7 says, but, on, but and th this is a key word here, it starts with that word, but, okay? That means there's a contrast here. He's give, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, uh, I'm going out of order, one God and Father of all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So he answers here, who has spiritual gifts? Who has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, by Christ? He says, every one of us is given grace, or grace is that word for gifts, given grace according to the measure of the gifts of Christ. Paul points out that Christ has given each and every one of us different gifts, or charis is the word there, which is, which is also used for divine enablement. Grace is a word, it talks about the free gift of God, but it also talks about God's enabling us to live our spiritual lives. And so God has given each of us different gifts and graces in our lives, and that can cause disunity if we're not careful. But what this, what this highlights to me is this truth. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. You can be united without all being cookie-cutter the same. In fact, I hate driving into neighborhoods in Oklahoma and every single house looks exactly the same. It's boring, it's bland, I don't really want to live there. I don't know, maybe Pastor Carsey's likes it because their lawns will probably all be perfect, right? You know, so, but, it's, but it's, it doesn't interest me, you know? I like variety, even like in our music in the church. I like variety. I loved the song the ladies sang because it was minor and then it went, and then it went major and then it went minor, but it was based on the words. But there was variety within it. Sometimes when you have the same thing over and over and over again, what happens? You tune out, okay? You get bored. You get distracted. And God has not designed the church to be a bunch of cookie-cutter Christians. We are all different. But we can still be united in spite of those differences. In fact, those differences are the result of God working in our lives. God created that difference. Because God gave us those gifts, right? It says here in verse number eight, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And now I'm not going to go into the theological implications of ascending and descending and all that stuff. If you want to hear about that, I'll be teaching out at some point in 1 Peter, so we'll get to that, okay? But the idea here is that Paul is quoting Psalm 68 and verse number, uh, verse number 18. Psalm 68, verse number says, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. And the context here in this psalm is God triumphing over his enemies. And then what happens when you triumph over your enemies? You receive gifts, you get the spoils of war. And the implication that Paul is trying to make is Jesus Christ spoiled the enemy by his resurrection. He spoiled the enemy, the demons who wanted to conquer him in death and to destroy him. He rose triumphant over them. And in that resurrection, Christ also led captivity captive. And then it says here, he gave gifts unto men. As the champion of an army, when you conquer a nation, all those things are technically, they, they would say they are the... Um, can't remember the word. Anyways, they belong to the, the conquering general, but he will t in turn oftentimes give them to his soldiers as a reward for their service. And so the idea here is Christ is victorious. He has conquered death and he has turned and he has given gifts unto men. And that, that text here that, that he's trying to get across here. Paul develops a similar con concept to this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. We'll turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. <clears throat> we'll start in verse number four. Verse 
1 Corinthians 12, verse number 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, okay? Differences of gifts, but the same Spirit, one Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, one Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but as the same God, one God, which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit of the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues, but... All these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing or, or d- dibbying out to every man severally or individually as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not the body. Is it therefore not the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. So this same single Holy Spirit has divvied out, has given out different individual gifts to all the members of the church. So all these gifts are given by the same Spirit, and so we can still be unified in spite of those differences. And then Paul, in, the, in verses 14 through 17 that we just read, he also emphasizes this. If all of us had the same spiritual gifts and we're just like each other, the body could not function the way that it ought to function, right? If all of you guys were pastors, okay, every single one of you, including Tanya, okay, we're all, you're all pastors in the church, who would do any of the listening, okay, so we'd all be up here pastoring and, and speaking from the pulpit. If we were all in the choir, who would listen to the choir? Nobody. If we were all Sunday school teachers, who would we have in class, you know? Uh, that's simple illustration, right? But the idea is if everybody was an ear, how would we see? If we were all eyes, how would we hear? We are all interconnected and interdependent on one another, even though we have different gifts that may, if we're walking in the flesh, cause conflict, and it may seem to destroy unity, but that is not the intent of those differences, because unity is not uniformity. <clears throat> so God, God has given all of us spiritual gifts. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter number four. He's given all of us spiritual gifts intended to amplify and to build the unity of the church. Verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some pastors and some, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Notice the first word, and. He is connecting here. Some people have argued, is God's gift um, to everybody or is, this, or is God's gift the spiritual men? I think Pastor preached on this. And the idea, though, here is it's both. God has given spiritual gifts to every single one of you, and he has also established leadership within the church for a, for a purpose. Okay? The, our next point is going to be the role of leadership in unity. And... Uh, This verse here says that God gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. I believe those are four gifts that are given to the church right there. Apostles and prophets, evangelists, and I believe pastors and teachers are the same thing. The grammar kind of separates them. So they're pastors and teachers. And it's important to, to realize that Paul has already laid out the concept in Ephesians that apostles and prophets were foundational to the church. Let's go back there. We've talked about this before. Ephesians 2, verse 20. Talking about the apostles and the prophets. We're actually talking about the the church, really. Here it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles 
and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation of the church was that ministry of the apostles and the ministry of those early prophets. And that foundation is not something that is continued on into today. So we don't see these gifts the same way that we, that we saw them back then because they were foundational. They were not intended to be continuing on. So what does that leave us with in this list? We're left with evangelists and we are left with pastor teachers. Okay, these are roles that, that are occupied within the ministry of the church. And obviously, I think you could probably throw in here deacons, but Paul doesn't mention deacons. I don't know why. You know, so, but what is an, ev- what is an evangelist? Evangelism or evan- evangelist comes from the same word that we get the word gospel. Gospel. It's euangelion, okay? And so what is their primary function? It is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see an example of this. Philip right, was an evangelist. And what did he do? He was also a deacon, by the way, okay? Philip went down to Samaria, and he preached the gospel in Samaria, and he saw thousands of people saved. And then God swept him up and carried him into the desert, and he meets how many people? One man, the Ethiopian eunuch, on his way. But this man was seeking God. He was reading the scriptures, and God was working in his heart. And what does Philip do? He preaches to him the gospel. That was their primary focus in, in, the, in, in, the, in the gospel readings that we have here in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles, is that evangelists were men whose primary role was to preach the gospel. I think today that most of the time this is fulfilled by missionaries and church planters, okay? They are really your evangelists in, in this technical sense. Now, we have, we have what we call evangelists that come to our churches, And honestly, those men have been called by God to be evangelists, and that would be their passion to see souls saved. I know that that's what they would tell you. But oftentimes, they function more in in the role of what we would call a revivalist. They preach sermons to stir us up, to encourage us to go out and preach the gospel. And that's necessary. We need that in our lives. But I think we need to get back to, at some point, having evangelists who are able to go in and do the work of evangelism. And so God has given evangelists to the church, but he has also given pastors and teachers, pastor-teachers here. And the idea is that a pastor is supposed to be a teacher. One of the qualifications for being a pastor is that he is apt to teach. That's actually the one difference between a pastor and a deacon, is that he has to be apt to teach. All those other qualifications you'll find in the qualifications for the deacons as well. So he has to be able to teach. Okay? And so as pastors, our role is to teach the body of Christ. And then he tells us why or how we're to do that. Verse 12, these men have been given to the church for the perfecting of the saints. And then I've retranslated this next word because it is a different preposition in Greek. In the work of the ministry for the edification of the body of Christ. So they have been given to the church to perfect the saints. That word perfect doesn't mean I'm going to make you guys perfect so that you have no faults, you never sin ever again the rest of your life. That's not the idea of perfect. The idea of perfect is mature. Pastors are to be growing their people in the maturity, in in spiritual maturity. And we'll see that again as we go through the rest of the text here. But they're to be perfecting the saints in the work of the ministry. Pastors and deacons And evangelists aren't the only ones called to ministry. Every single one of us is called to ministry. It may not be full-time ministry, but we are called to ministry. To minister. What does it mean to minister? It means serve, right? It means serve. And And then what type of ministry does he specifically say here? He says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We are all called to edify the body of Christ. This is not my job alone. It is not Pastor Carsey's job alone. It is not the Sunday school teacher's job alone to do this. This is everyone's job that we have all been given. But pastors are uniquely given the responsibility of growing their people in the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long are we to do it? Verse number 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you are to exercise your spiritual gifts 
I am to exercise my spiritual gift as a pastor for the, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long? Until we come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So does that mean tomorrow we're all going to be unified? I can quit. I'm done. I can stop pastoring. No, this is not talking about a day on earth that we will all be unified and we will know, the, and specifically that second verse really points this out, we will know the Son of God. This is talking about a future date. The only time we will ever experience 100% perfect, true unity is in heaven. When we see Jesus Christ face to face and we are all united in his presence. So I am to continue and you are to continue your work of edifying and building the body of Christ until that day when we are all face to face with Jesus Christ. And this is why I say that as, as united as this church is, there is still growth that needs to happen because we will not reach perfect unity until we are in heaven, until we are in face, face to face with Jesus Christ. And so we are to do this until we come to the unity of the faith, okay? The faith. A lot of the movement for unity today in ecumenical churches is that we should be united and ignore everything else that separates us. That is not what this text is teaching. That we're the faith refers to the doctrines of our belief. We are all united in our belief, okay? And so if, when we talk about unity, it has to be based around beliefs. We can't ignore what the doctrinal differences that make us what we are. This is why you came to a Baptist church instead of going to a Presbyterian church. There are doctrinal differences that separate us, that make us distinct. And honestly, they make worshiping together pretty much impossible because somebody has to compromise, ultimately, when it comes down to it. <clears throat> Just to use one example, baptizing babies. Okay, Joy, take Samuel. Yeah, let's say this is a Presbyterian church. What am I going to do with Samuel? I'm going to sprinkle him. This is a Baptist church. What am I going to do with Samuel? What is that? Yeah, as a believer. Okay, I thought you said as a baby. So we're not going to immerse him as a baby. We're not doing, we're not, yeah, we're not dunking him. There are churches that do that, though, okay? So, but no, Baptists, we believe that baptism is only for born-again believers. People have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here's the thing. Joy's got a choice. If she goes to a Presbyterian church and she doesn't agree with that, she's going to have to compromise, right? Unity has to be based around common beliefs. Does that mean we agree on everything? No, because there's not a single one of us in this room that agrees on everything, right? We have different opinions on things, but those core, those central beliefs that make us who we are, we ought to be united around those things. So we are to continue to strive for that unity. That's also why pastors teach, to help us grow in unity. I can't just say, hey, you need to start believing this because I said so. I teach you. I show you from the word of God why this is true, and we all grow together in that unity. But we won't reach it till heaven. And then we're to keep on doing this until we reach the unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. We talked about 1 Corinthians chapter number 13 recently, where right now I know in part, but at that day I will know even as I am known, because I will see him face to face. That day is a future day, though. And we are to continue striving for that. We are to strive for that kind of unity and continue growing in that kind of unity. And as we do that, it will produce what verse 13 calls a perfect man. A perfect man. This is an analogy for the church. Man, the man there is not Jeff. The man is the church that is being spoken of. Okay? It's not an individual. And the idea here, again, perfect means mature. Our churches can be mature, and we ought to be growing in maturity and completeness and wholeness in our faith. It says, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we are to grow up into that mature man who it grows up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The idea here is we become more and more Christ-like. Christ -like. We become more like him. Verse number 14 here re-emphasizes this fact that unity has to be based around doctrinal truth, okay? And I'll draw that out because there's one verse I think we oftentimes misinterpret because we don't understand the context. But verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children 
tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait. So as pastors, as believers who have been gifted spiritual gifts, we are to pursue unity till we come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of Christ for the purpose that, this is why, we henceforth be no more children. So Paul lays out a contrast here between children and between, in verse 15, grown-ups. Verse 15 says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him. One thing that is true about children, if I went to AJ and said, AJ, I've got a million dollars for you today, would he be excited about it? Probably. Okay. Because he probably thinks I have a million dollars to give him. But now if I went to Jim and said, Jim, I've got a million dollars to give you today, what's your first response going to be? Skepticism. Yeah, okay. You are not going to believe me because there is a knowledge gap. There is an experience gap between Jim and AJ, right? Children are easily deceived. This is why magic tricks work so well. Okay, so Luke does this probably every Wednesday night that he teaches in Truth Trackers. He shows them a magic trick. But what's the whole point? to deceive, okay? So to trick them into thinking that what he did was actually real, you know? And adults are less easily deceived. We automatically understand and know that this is not magic, okay? Except maybe you see Chris Angel and all his magic tricks and everything. You might think, oh, I don't understand how that's even possible. So, But adults are less easily deceived. And as Christians, we could be children, and that, that's not what we need to be. We need to be growing. We need to not be babes. We need to not be children who are easily deceived. He says here, that we henceforth be no more children. What's descriptive of children, according to Paul? Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and a cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Tossed to and fro. How decisive are kids? They see, ooh, some bubble gum over here. Or they see, oh, uh, an airhead over here. And they're bouncing back and forth from thing to thing. You take them to an arcade. What are your kids going to do? They're going to run around bouncing from place to place saying, I want to play this. I want to play this. I want to do this. This is why mothers, it's very difficult to take them to the grocery store because they want everything on the shelves. But they're being tossed to and fro, backwards and forwards. And what, it, what does that describe? Instability, right? It's like a wave that goes up and it goes down, Right? That, that's what children are like. They're tossed to and fro. And it says they, in the next phrase, again, using the same illustration, carried about with every wind of doctrine. So one wind blows in and says this thing. They believe it. They're excited about it. And another wind comes and they grab onto it and they're excited about this. But you know what? We adults are like this with doctrine, right? Every wind of doctrine. Well, what is doctrine? It is teaching. And so somebody comes in, they're a great speaker, they're exciting, and they can somewhat prove their point, and we've never thought about it before, and they say, um, Luke, you should uh, only wear white shirts to church. Okay, that's a doctrine, right? They're teaching you something. Only wear white shirts to church. And there are churches that believe this, okay? Believe it or not. Okay, so, and so you get swept away with their wind of doctrine because they convinced you. But then Jason comes along, and he never wears a white shirt almost. So, And he says, I don't like wearing sh white shirts, and the Bible doesn't say you should wear white shirts, and white shirts stain a whole lot easier, so that's why I don't wear them. Okay, so, And I convince you, and now you're like, yes, I need to wear only purple and blue and pink and violet and green shirts. Okay, So you're shaking your head, so green shirts. But anything but white, right? And so now you're excited about that thing. Well, what happened? You were carried about with winds of doctrines. You went from one thing to another because somebody came and they blew you over and they excited you about it instead of convincing you and grounding you in your faith. And this is why people can go from church to church and don't care, they don't pay attention to the differences or they just randomly get excited. Did you know the number one denomination that Mormons come from is independent Baptist churches? Because independent Baptists are not grounded in their faith and they get blown away with, with winds of doctrine. They get carried away with somebody who says something and it's convincing. And they don't know their Bible the way that they should because they are children. They are immature in their faith. And they're blown around with every wind of doctrine. So you need to be grounded. That's part of being a perfect, mature believer in Jesus Christ. 
says that says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Again, this is hinting at that idea of deception here, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Verse 15, though, again, starts with the word but. He's making a contrast. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, a lot of times we talk about speaking the truth and we use generic terms for the truth. You should speak truth, but you should do it lovingly. But contextually, what Paul is saying is you should speak doctrinal truth. Doctrinal truth. That is what is going to ground people. That is what's going to keep them from being children, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, is true biblical truth, doctrinal truth, but we are to speak it in love. In love is going to be a key, key phrase here because he repeats it again in verse 16. So we are to speak doctrinal truth in love, and what's the end result? We will grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ-likeness. Doctrinal truth will produce, if it's done right, Christ-likeness. That is the end result. We see this in James where he talks about the wisdom that is from above. It is first pure, then peaceable, then easy to be entreated. All, the, all these different descriptions right here of the wisdom that is from above. True biblical truth, true biblical wisdom ought to produce holiness in our lives. But the wisdom that is from below produces what? enmity and divisions and discord, basically, among us. So there's something that looks like truth, that looks like wisdom, but it's not God's wisdom. And the end result is that it produces division and, and destruction. But God's wisdom, spoken in love, produces Christ-likeness. It, it enables us to not be children, but to be grown-ups, to be mature believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. For whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And so the result, the result here of these gifted men using their gifts to build up the church until we all come face to face with Jesus Christ is that believers will be made mature. They will no longer be children. They will no longer be tossed to and fro with, with winds of doctrines. They will speak the truth in love. And the whole body will be fitly joined together. Luke does carpentry, right? I think he was talking about recently Japanese carpentry and how they don't have to have dowel rods and things like that to hold it together because the way they put it together it just fits. It just sits there. It's, it fits perfectly. As a body of Christ, we are to continually be seeking to edify the body until it fits jointly together, compacted by what? By that which every joint supplieth. You are a joint, okay? Jeff, you're an elbow. Jim, you're a kneecap, okay? You're, you're a joint, and the whole body depends on you. It's what holds the body together. All of us are these joints, and each joint supplies different things, different strength, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, according to the working of each part doing its job, making increase of the body. Now, when, I can't help it. When I read that phrase, all I think of is getting fat, okay? <laughs> making increase of the body, you know, but the idea here is that the body is growing, making increase of the body onto the edifying of itself. Again, key two words, in love, right? So if I were to summarize everything that I've talked about, with this whole message, I know because I'm just going through the text here, it seems a little bit random, but what we should be striving for is to be mature believers unified in our faith with one another because the end result of that is that the body will be grown, it will be edified, and every believer will be grown and will be edified so that they are no longer children, but they are grown-ups in their faith. They are established, they are, they are anchored in the truth. And that should be what we are striving for in the way that we interact with one another as believers. Now, all of us are on different, uh, different parts of our journey of our faith. Some of you are new Christians, some of you are 
older Christians who've been Christians for a long time. Some of you are older Christians who act like newer Christians, okay? And we're all in different places. But what this church should be striving for as a goal is to edify, to grow every single one of us into that mature man, that perfect man that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 9. So let's go ahead and uh, close our eyes. We'll, we'll stand here. <clears throat> Some points, really, that you could derive from this text is we're all supposed to be working alongside the pastors and teachers in the building of the church. Unity is based on our common relationship with God and our common faith. Our goal should be to make mature believers and not children. And the method for building up that body is speaking the truth in love. Teaching the truth, teaching doctrinal truth in love. So I think if I were to ask you a question and invitation here is, are we a mature church? Are we becoming more and more uh, of a mature church? I know unity is not something we will experience perfectly here, but are we growing in that direction? And what what are you doing to move us down that line? Because again, every one of us has been given gifts spiritual gifts. That doesn't fall on me, doesn't fall on Pastor Carsey's, it falls on all of us. So let's go and have the piano play. If you uh, need to talk to the Lord about something, the, the altar is always open. You can spend some time dealing with things with him.